Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Jared Pierce. We're at Grosha Cellars in Amity. It's February 6, 2020. Jared, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate Thank you. this. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, first question we want to ask you, the first question we always ask, why wine? Um, well, um, uh, kind of a long story, I guess. But, um, <laughs> Please. Uh, well, I uh, um, moved to Oregon from Iowa, uh, graduated high school in Iowa, and then uh, went to Linfield College, where you guys are associated. and. Um, just my journey through going to school and living in this area, I uh, just became more and more aware of uh, wine in this area and how it sort of related to, I don't know, the local economy and everything. Um, and uh, I just saw a lot of opportunity there um, in, for, for work. Um, uh, so oh, after I graduated Linfield, um, well, I had a, uh, uh, graduated with a, a math degree and a philosophy degree, uh, but I just wasn't really uh, a fan of my options after that. So um, I wasn't, yeah, it was either kind of become like a middle school math teacher essentially, and I'm a terrible teacher, so I just wasn't my skill set at all. Or, uh, or I was thinking maybe like become an actuary in an insurance company, um, and that didn't, yeah, just crunching numbers in a desk all day just didn't seem too appealing. Um, so, uh, so I was, I didn't want to go right back into school after graduating. So, um, I just sort of, you know, found a little bit of work in, in the area, um, you know, restaurants on Third Street in McMinnville. Um, and, um, uh, but actually before I graduated in the summer of 2006, um, I uh, uh, got a job uh, working in a vineyard at Youngberg Hill, um, just working in the vines, like straightening shoots, pulling leaves, just basically you know, managing the vines. But, uh, but I wasn't a, not a manager, obviously, but I was just you know, um, out there in the vines doing the work. Um, and uh, so that kind of put it on the radar for me a little bit. And then, uh, then working work in the restaurants and being around people who know more people in the, in the wine industry, um, sort of I, I was, yeah, just was more exposed to it mm -hmm. and more of like the lifestyle behind it. I know I get to know the people that are behind it. Um, and uh, so then, then I heard about this thing called Harvest and how you apparently were, would be able to make a lot, of, a lot of money in a short amount of time, which seemed appealing at the time, you know. Um, <laughs> But then, uh, so I, uh, so I uh, found a job at, on a harvest crew at uh, 12th of Maple in 2008. Um, it's about a year to, or a year or so after graduating. And, um, uh, and yeah, I just was kind of just, in, just really into it then after that. I just, uh, yeah, um, was just enthralled with the kind of work, um, the, uh, just the flow of the cellar, the actually you know, working with the wine, smelling and tasting everything, and working with barrels, that was um, just really an experience for me. Um, uh, so then, but I wasn't quite convinced that I was gonna you know, jump into it as a full career after that, so I kind of bummed around in restaurants and even found some, some jobs in tasting rooms um, in uh, 2009 and kind of into 2010. Um, but then uh, I came to a point where I realized I had I gotta do something and, um, and so if I'm going to do wine, might as well really go into it and jump in with both feet. 
And um, so I uh, uh, applied for um, uh, another harvest position, but in New Zealand in 2010 for my second harvest. Um, and even though 12th Maple was a bigger winery around here, but I went to a bigger winery in New Zealand and it was a whole different scale. It was like, mm. it's like what we would do all year in Oregon, they would do in one day in New Zealand. So it's a whole different scale of a, of a, of a facility. Um, and as a result, they, have, uh, they would have uh, a lot more um, in interns on hand. And um, so there was about 30 people that, that harvest, um, right, that traveled from all over the world uh, just to do harvest. And, and there was a, a wide range of experience too. So there was um, uh, people like new, new beginners like me, and um, uh, also people that were going to school in, um, you know, like Santiago, Chile, Argentina, a couple guys from UC Davis, <laughs> uh, people from all over the place, really. Um, and so just asking them and working alongside them and just asking them a lot of questions and, and learning a little bit about uh, the basics of the chemistry and everything. Um, and also I was, yeah, asked a lot of questions to the winemaker and the assistant winemaker about what it is that, um, that accounts for the quality of the wine that they're making. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and so that was yeah. So then after that, I was just, just knew that this was something that it was it was worthwhile to do. Um, so then I got back to the to the U.S. and and uh, spent even more time in the library and just, you know reading and um, looking up you know academic articles online, uh, analyzing a lot, a lot of weather data and um, uh, and then in, um, for harvest here in Oregon, then uh, I was on the uh, the crew for Elk Cove that year. Um, which was a you know, crazy year, which was, uh, yeah, that was uh, when the, the birds took like about a third of all the grapes, which was just unfortunate. But, um, and as a result, since we had less grapes, there was less work for us to do, but so it was kind of a slower harvest for us, but it was still really good and a good learning experience. Work with the Campbells up there. Um, and then, um, let's see, uh, and then, in, in, but I wasn't able to find a, uh, a full-time job or anything at this point, so I was still kind of filling, the, filling the, the, my time in between harvests with um, uh, restaurant, uh, restaurant work and tasting room gigs, and also um, uh, for a number of years off and on worked for a temp agency, um, which was supplying labor to uh, various wineries around the area mm -hmm. for like bottling days and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so I helped bottle at you know, dozens of different wineries around the area, and as a result got to talk to lots of different winemakers and they hear their and taste their wines usually. Um, and just learn more about their approach to the winemaking, the winemaking method. Um, uh, and then in 2011, I was able to uh, travel down to Australia and do two harvests down there in one year. Uh, so first was at in Hunter Valley uh, at Pools Rock, and then uh, after that it was at, in uh, Kunawara at Rymel Kunawara. Um, so that was a really good trip. And, um, and you make a little bit more money down there in Australia than you do up here, uh, just the way it works out with, you know, how they, how, what they offer for, for payment. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought I, you know, had a little bit of money saved, and so I thought, like, hey, let's go to France. Um, so I, I met a friend from Australia um, uh, that I made um, in my first harvest. We met in, um, uh, yeah, we met in Paris. Um, and, um, uh, and we just traveled around like southern, southern France and uh, went to Barcelona, Spain for a little bit and um, uh, Amsterdam and mostly, it was mostly um, southern France though and just kind of backpacked around, lots of camping, hostels and um, had fun hitchhiking and really you know, just traveling on a budget really. <laughs> so we were able to get up to Burgundy but wasn't able to really 
taste a lot of wine because that costs some money, so which we didn't have. Um, but uh, but yeah, the whole trip was a blast, and it was a really big learning experience. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so by the time I got back to America, I was basically broke, penniless, and had to move in into my friend's garage for a couple months, and um, before our room opened up inside, and um, and uh, and and that that year, uh, 2011 was uh, well, we left Burgundy. Um, well, we were camping right outside Savigny Le Bon, right just as they were starting to pick the grapes. Because um, we were kind of, you know, in the campgrounds that we were in, there was lots of other like, like German students and other travelers who were um, working the vines that year. Um, so we got to uh, talk with them a little bit. Um, and uh, but which I think was interesting because it was, it was one of the earliest years ever for Burgundy. But then coming back, you know, to Oregon for for harvest, it was one of our latest years ever because you know there were some vineyards that didn't get picked until November, which is just unheard of. Um, so just an interesting contrast there. Um, uh, so then 2011 for for Oregon, I was back at 12th and Maple for harvest again that year. So um, and. Um, in a different part of the winery at that point though because uh, they have their small wine making side and their larger wine making side um, and uh, so I was I had doing more of the larger wine making side on the, at that point um, and yeah so in and I was I guess able to get some more work through 12th maple after harvest that year but only mostly on the bottling line um, and so yeah just bottling lots of bottling lots of waiting tables and just doing what I could just to just to be able to pay rent and everything, mm -hmm. um, and then uh, see 2012. Um, I had no traveling because that was that was, it's it's very appealing and it's fun while you're doing it, but it is kind of draining, and I needed some time to sort of uh, you know to get back get back home and sort of uh, um, you know establish myself, I guess, and uh, um, build something that I could you know grow on. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, yeah, so I just, yeah, again, doing the restaurants, tasting rooms, bottling jobs, whatever I could get. So I just had like several, an, uh, a number of um, people that I would you know, go, be able to go, go help out. And um, uh, 2013 then, uh, well, 2012, I went back to 12th and Maple again uh, for harvest. Uh, but then uh, 2013, uh, I was able to get on uh, uh, find a, a full-time job at Owen Row uh, starting like mid-spring and that lasted till the end of harvest so it was a, like a, a several months of work there mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, but then I stupidly kind of um, got another full-time job on top of that full-time job working at a restaurant um, that's why I was thinking I would you know try to make as much money as possible to pay off you know as many bills as I could um, you know mostly student loans really but mm -hmm. uh, which sort of went well but uh, but it was so it was kind of like working harvest hours all summer long so it just really drained me and um, I was beat by the end of it um, uh, but so uh, after harvest, um, I, I left the restaurant, and uh, they didn't need me anymore at the at the winery because uh, you know no more work. So they and then also they were moving. Uh, there were, that was their last harvest at their location at the Shampooey Winery, um, uh, right before they moved up to uh, the Yakima facility mm -hmm. that they mm -hmm. just built. Um, and so, if I were to stay with Owen Row, I would have had to move up to Yakima, Washington, and that would have been a big change. But uh, but it turned <coughs> out they, they didn't need me, so I they. Uh, uh, so I, I cut my contract and um, and I was again looking for work. So um, and I had met a few uh, winemakers, just you know, doing the, the bottling gigs. Um, 
and um, through the, the temp agency, just through word of mouth too. Um, so uh, yeah, I sent an email to uh, a, a few winemakers just asking if they had any kind of work. Um, I think the title of the email was Harvest Blues or something like that. Because <laughs> um, like, yeah, there's, it's, it's such a climax and it ends and then there's nothing. They're just like, oh, what do I do now? But um, uh, so, um, uh, but one of the um, one of the people that I emailed was um, my boss now, uh, John Groshaw, and so uh, he was still a very small uh, label, but at that point, only doing um, uh, just a, a few around like four to five thousand cases, I think, by that point. Um, which one person can do, but it's, it can be, it starts to be kind of a lot. Uh, so he was finding he, he needed to spend more time on the road and travel mm -hmm. um, and just need a little bit more help in the cellar. So that's kind of where I came in. Uh, so that kind of served as a part-time role for me. Um, then on the side, I was filling that in just by helping out other winemakers, but more um, cellar work and not just bottling line stuff, even though a lot of it was bottling. Um, but so I had a, 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 just a few different winemakers that I would call up asking for work, or they would call me and I would just sort of piece together a, a full work week with, from going from several winery, wineries and just sort of doing things piecemeal that way. Um, and so that kind of uh, went on for a while. and. Um, uh, but John, he was also um, acting as the winemaker for the Bjornsson Vineyard before uh, the owners were able to take over the, the winemaking duties. Um, but once, so they, he had a connection with them. Um, and so I was doing a little bit of work sort of with them as they built their winery and uh, um, got that up and running um, starting in 2014. And so I was doing more water work for the Bjornsons then, just kind of through John in a way. Uh, but it was, even though they were a separate entity by this point. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so, yeah, just, uh, so I kind of became the assistant winemaker for John uh, in 2014 and became the assistant winemaker for the Bjornsons at the same time. So I was, but they were very generous and I was able to split the time between the two and, um, um, and it, it worked out pretty well. Um, and so that, did harvests for those two from you know, 14, 15, 16, and 17, and then um, uh, left the Bjornsons after the 17 harvest, and, and it's been full-time with Groshaw sellers uh, ever since 18 and 19. And so, it's, uh, so I was able to get um, more experience just with, with one location and really get to know the vineyard really well. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it was just nice to have um, just, just, just to stay with the wine really from mm -hmm. harvest to bottle at that point um, for the whole year, for several years in a row, and to really get to know um, how the wine changes and, and um, yeah, what, what goes into this. And, and, so, and the whole time I was also, um, uh, you know, again, trying to stay uh, up, on my, up, up on the books and just say to read as much as possible, learn as much of the, about the chemistry of wine, because that seemed to be a very important aspect to it. Um, and that doesn't always get talked about or gets glazed over too much because you know wine is a very subjective thing. Um, it's what people have their own personal explanations for it, but that personal explanation might not really make sense to another person mm -hmm. in the same way. You know, so um, I was looking for more of a um, more of a objective sort of standpoint. Mm -hmm. So that's where the the chemistry kind of comes in. Um, which is at point, some points a little bit theoretical because we don't know a lot about the chemistry of wine, but, it, but what is out there, it is very helpful. Mm -hmm. It kind of suggests what to do with grapes um, given a certain set of conditions mm -hmm. or 
versus another uh, path get with another set of conditions. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and also I took a few classes at Chemeketa too, uh, which was interesting because, um, um, well, I, I decided to to you know enroll in Chemeketa because I felt like um, this was back in starting 2013 I think is when I started classes um, or late 2013. Um, uh, actually, I think it was might have been 2014 when I first started there. Sorry. Um, uh, but anyway, um, uh, yeah, but I felt like my, my career wasn't really going anywhere, but hadn't, wasn't really getting it, or didn't really have any promotions because I wasn't at a place for long enough to really earn that sort of trust. Um, but then as soon as the winemakers that I was working around saw that I was starting taking classes, suddenly I started getting paid more. It was just, just doing that, it was made a big difference. Um, and they saw that I was more invested in it, and uh, they kind of started to include me more in the winemaking process, and so I was more integral to the, the whole process mm -hmm. by that point. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I was trying to, you know, keeping that momentum and staying on top of, you know, the information that's out there and, um, uh, and applying it to the actual experience of making wine and understanding what, what we're tasting and checking with what we're tasting with, with the books and, and yeah, um, and trying to, try to make sense of it all. Um, that, that's a lot yeah. of hustle to get yeah, it was, there. It was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it took a while though, but yeah. Um, that's, but, that's impressive. I feel pretty uh, stable now though, so it's, it's good. <laughs> so, so finally, yeah, um, uh, starting in 2018, um, uh, uh, bought about two tons of grapes from Vita Springs Vineyard and um, I was trying to yeah, make, make a rosé and put it under my own label. Because um, that's really kind of the end goal here because um, well, I didn't really want to, you know, I thought about going to like, UC Davis or Fresno or OSU or something to um, do like a, a, like a winemaking graduate degree or mm -hmm. fermentation sciences or whatever they have. Um, but I didn't want to do that because I just would have meant more student debt and more student loan debt. and. Um, the uh, um, I felt like the the job opportunities that would have been available after graduating would have just been in a bigger winery that where I would have been managing people as opposed to doing the actual winemaking, and that's not really what I was interested in, in going after as a career. So uh, I just realized like okay, I probably should just I just need really just want to work for myself, you know, <laughs> um, and uh, do my own thing and with my own label and. And yeah, so I'll try to make it that way. So, and, and if, I, if that's the case, then I don't really need a degree. Um, but you still need to know what you're talking about because it is very competitive out there. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, so I should be focusing on uh, learning the chemistry of wine mostly. Um, and I'm not a chemist, so it's it takes a while to, to learn that. <laughs> um, and so yeah, that was 2018. Um, uh, made the uh, just one wine, rosé from from Vita Springs. It's a blend of 60% um, uh, Pinot Gris and 40% Pinot Noir, and it was a really—it uh, was more like white winemaking style for rosé because some rosés are more like red wine style in a way, or bigger and heavier. This was more um, lighter, uh, very acid-driven, had a good acid backbone. That was—that really just comes from um, how great that site is, because that's such a yeah, just mm -hmm. such a good strong acid from that site. That's um, that really works well for the wine. Um, and luckily that wine's almost all sold out now um, and bottling the 2019 rosé um, at the end of this month. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, yeah, hopefully that'll go over well too. But 
Um, but then still in 2019 then, um, made, made a rosé again, but from a different vineyard, from uh, One Heart Vineyard, mm-hmm. um, which is in connection with uh, One Love Cellars, um, which is uh, not too far from uh, Turner, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, kind of close to Vita Springs, but about 10 miles or so in between, but still in the South Salem Hills, mm-hmm. which is a really good area that I'm really, I think has a lot of potential in the future. Um, uh, there's, yeah, some really good sites down there that aren't, as well known mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. It's not like the Dundee Hills where there's all this hype and energy or like Ribbon Ridge where there's, you know, again, where all the, the, the money just gets funneled into those areas and, and at least uh, higher grape prices and higher bottle prices and then with, with, still with really good wine scores. But, um, uh, but areas like South Salem Hills, I think are not as well known yet, but they still have just as good a quality mm-hmm. in some areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but are still, but it's not, since it's not as well known, it's more, you know, the cheaper grape prices, so it's more easier for people like me to, to buy grapes uh, in these areas. Sure. Um, uh, yeah, and so that was the, that was the rosé, and, but, and then I'm also doing a, a red blend for 2019. And that one is, uh, uh it's a little different, um, but, uh, and I, I really do want to make, you know, like single vineyard Pinot Noir and really make the best Pinot Noir available, but, uh, after asking around and talking to uh, uh, restaurant owners and wine buyers at restaurants and bars and such um, and sommeliers, uh, for someone like a, a small label, no-name winery like myself to get out there on the market, which is already very saturated with Pinot Noir, it's much easier to get on a wine list if you have, like, say, a red blend um, or rosé, I think, because mm-hmm. rosé is just so popular now. Um, uh, uh, so I so I decided to go with a red blend instead of doing Pinot, um, and uh, uh, so and but I still wanted to keep it in this area and, and related to Pinot and Burgundy, um, so I um, went with a, a, a Pastu Grand sort of style, which is uh, a blend of uh, Pinot Noir, Gamay, and Chardonnay, uh, which is a, a a blend that can be done in Burgundy, but it's not as well not as well known. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but so I was able to find three really good, good, really good vineyards for that, and get equal portions, one third each of each of those varieties, um, and co-ferment everything together. Um, so it's a it's a really interesting wine, but it's more um, uh, more more light bodied. Uh, mm-hmm. It's pretty low alcohol, uh, but still very good good structure, good, good tannins on it. Um, so it's more of an uh, early approachable kind of easy drinking red that should be ready right out of the gate once we bottle it um, at the end of the summer. Awesome. Um, and with that one, I was able to get um, uh, went back to Vita Springs for the Pinot Noir because uh, it's such a good site. Um, uh, for the Gamay, uh, got some Gamay from Jubilee uh, Vineyard, which is just up on the hill, like five miles from here, um, uh, up on the Eel Amity Hills. And uh, and for the Chardonnay, I was able to get some. Um, uh, well, we, work, we do a lot a lot of work with the Armstrong Vineyard through Groschau Cellars, um, uh, which is the Red Electric label, and. Um, uh, and so the owner, he, he brought in a, a little bit more Chardonnay than what we were ready for that year. So I was able just to take a little bit of that off of John's hands and, and use it for my own purposes, which is great because that's an excellent vineyard up there, mm-hmm. uh, up in the Ribbon Ridge. I think there's, they're gonna, yeah, they're gonna make some really good wine out of that. Um, so, so, so three different yeah. vineyards and three different AVAs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. And, uh, but they're all excellent sites though. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm really, really looking forward to how, see how that turns out. Sure. Um, 
So before I get into the wine, I want to back up just a second sure. and find how you got to Linfield fr from Iowa. Why did you oh. Why did you choose to come out um, here? Well, I was just uh, ready for something else besides the Midwest, I guess. Um, uh, yeah, I just wanted something different, I guess. Um, and uh, I found Linfield in that one magazine, the U.S. News and World Reports. Mm -hmm. Uh, where they had, had really high rankings and they were at the top of the list for just general bachelor's degrees because you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, I knew I wanted to do math because that's always been kind of a thing. Um, um, and so I just started at the top and I was just going to work my way down and, and Linfield seemed kind of cool and and I just went with it and um, got some good scholarships so that helped out. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, we, uh, so I came out here in I think it was February of my senior year uh, for the competitive scholarship okay. weekend and saw the area, saw McMinnville and um, where I was um, in the, the physics portion of that and um, and yeah it just seemed like a cool area and, and we even um, went to a, a tasting room during that trip, went to a, um, Amity Vineyards tasting room which was kind of cool. Um, so that was my first experience for Oregon wine, um, going to Amity Vineyards um, and it was just, I, I love it now because um, um, well, we, we also do a lot of work with uh, the Redford Weddell Vineyard, which is mm -hmm. the, the original owner of Amity Vineyards, Myron Redford. Um, it's his, this is kind of his retirement vineyard in a way, uh, is Redford Weddell. Um, so we, we buy a lot of those grapes, and, and my boss John gets you know, his close connection with Myron also. And, and so um, uh, Myron likes to host these Monday night events, or Mondays at Myron's, maybe you've heard of it. but. Um, where we go and watch Monday Night Football, and he just brings up old bottles from from his basement, which is just stacked full of cases. Um, so it's really a sight. Um, uh, and, and so we'll just you know watch football and drink wine. And usually the football is kind of in the background, <laughs> just more uh, arguing and discussing the wine. And um, but yeah, because we're always usually doing it blind. And uh, Myron always makes us guess the the year and the varietal. And it's yeah, it's really interesting. And he, he loves doing birth year wines, so he'll find out what year you were born and bring up that bottle. And so I've got <laughs> one of those in my personal collection cool. for Myron. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> his cellar was quite an eye-opening experience for me yeah. the first time I saw it. It is a treat seeing that. Yeah, that's so awesome. <laughs> so tell me about um, you mentioned you mentioned your mentors, mentioned John especially. Tell me about mm -hmm. the process of learning. You mentioned like especially once you got to a place and you got to stay here for the whole process of mm -hmm. the of the year. Tell me about learning that process of winemaking and, and and of the whole cycle and 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 what about it from the beginning especially, but as you moved along your career, what about it appealed to you? What what was it about winemaking? What was it about vineyard work that was so appealing? Um. Well, I felt more drawn to the cellar side. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I mean, I do love being outside and I love uh, growing grapes, but I've never actually grown grapes besides just working in the vines that one year and mm -hmm. answer some Schmeckata classes. Um, but I guess I've, I've never had a green thumb um, personally, so I've, I don't know, I, and, but I've, so I've like always, with like, with, you know, uh, a kind of a math background, I'm more analytical and um, kind of theoretical. At, with, with with you know with, with some things, and so working in the cellar and studying the chemistry, it was more more like that mm -hmm. sort of work, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. So it was just very very appealing to me. And uh, uh, one of the things that really drew me to wine um, when I was first getting into it was um, just the all the different possibilities that you can that that you could that you could really dive into. Um, 
uh, for subjects that you could dive into um, that are just a part of the wine world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's like there's there's chemistry. You know, there's economics. There's um, you know sales, uh, mm -hmm. marketing. It's all kind of there. Mm -hmm. um, it's just kind of a sort of a, um, a subsection of you know life as it is. So, um, so I just thought it would be a good industry to, to grow in. Um, mm -hmm. And so there'd always be something new to learn, something new to, to try out, um, uh, but, but still when related to wine. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah. As you started your, your own thing here, tell me mm -hmm. about the, the learning curve for that as you, as you have to buy your own grapes and sell your own wine. Tell me about what you had, and, and of course come up with a label and design, design your labels yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Tell me about that kind of process of, of naming, labeling, bottling, mm -hmm. selling your own product. Um, uh, well, um, for uh, buying the grapes and making the wine, it was it was interesting. It was, I mean, it was I'm very familiar with that process, and um, that's really what we do here. My role here is just working with the grapes and um, doing the the manual labor of the wine making process. So doing all that was pretty easy, but um, uh, it was it was different though. Just have, not having anyone tell me what to do. It was, so it was nice just to have the freedom to to make decisions, and that's really what I was going for. Um, um, and yeah, it was that was a really fun part of it for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and again, yes, you've heard this several times. But yeah, selling it is the hard part, um, but it's but. But um, comparing that to what you know, Oregon was 30, 40 years ago, it's it's much different now, and and the the infrastructure that's there um, within the Oregon wine industry, it's it's yeah, it's, it's if, you, if you know people, if you make connections, it's it's there for you. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, finding a, a distributor and uh, finding restaurants, you know, there's less explaining for you know where you're coming from you know there's not not as many surprises that we have good quality wine coming from Oregon um, uh, which you know problems that the, you know the pioneers certainly had to um, tackle um, um, let's see um, what about designing your naming it designing oh, a label um, all the kind of that kind of stuff how did you yeah how did you set out to do that um, well I'm not too clever on names so I just smell with my initials and <laughs> um, I don't know, keep it simple I guess um, I've seen other uh, winemakers who started with something a more clever name, uh, but as they progressed and matured in their winemaking style, they just decided to scrap that name and just put their own personal last name on it. Uh, so I just decided to skip that and just put my name on it. Um, <laughs> um, and for the design, um, uh, well, I got the logo uh, was designed by my brother. He's um, uh, he does art in Chicago with lots of geometric shapes um, or abstract geometric shapes. Um, and um, and just and what he um, and I just really liked what 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 he what, what he sent to me and because um, I was going for something that wasn't that still that that looked beautiful to me that but still wasn't symmetrical because um, I I don't like I don't know, I feel like symmetry gets a little boring sometimes um, and so um, yeah but but what what, what he gave me uh, what what would have my my label I'm really happy with that. Mm -hmm. um, we might make changes in the future, but we'll see. But it works. It was great for now. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was just going for more of a simple, more elegant design um, with something unique as the logo uh, that might be memorable to customers, hopefully. But um, mm -hmm. but that's that's a side thing that I'm not very good at. So I, it's yeah, I got a that's a I'm at the very beginning of the learning curve for that. Um, nice um, to have an artistic yeah. brother to, to help yeah. you out there. Yeah, that's yeah. Nice. 
Yeah, and my, my sister's going to be helping out for the uh, the red blend. Oh, cool. Uh, she's also a, an artist too, but uh, so they're the artists, and I was the math nerd. And so, I, uh, so I need help with the marketing side of that for sure. <laughs> the, the design. Um, you mentioned yeah. earlier as you were coming, coming up with the red blend, uh, mm -hmm. the idea being that it would be an easier way to start a small label than just mm -hmm. having another Pinot Noir. How, uh, mm -hmm. And having a rosé, like you said, rosé and, and a red blend. Mm -hmm. How has that proven to be true? Have you had pretty good success with that without, uh, without a lot of name recognition? Sort of, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was lucky enough to um, slowly sell the rosé over time and um, or enough to get my name out there. So there's yeah, a number of restaurants in Portland um, and throughout the Willamette Valley that um, that have bought some and, and serve it. So now I'll be able to go back to those um, locations and they already know me and um, already have a rapport with them. So, um, um, but yeah, the, but the rosé, was, it was not the easiest to sell, but it's still, but it was very good wine. It did turn out really well. Again, I guess the Vita Springs is a really good site for that. Um, so having a, yeah, a single vineyard rosé was different than most rosés out there. So, um, and at, at, at the price point is also a big thing too. So you have to make it, you know, give them the incentive to, you know, to, uh, to, you know, make it, make it easy for them on the, on, on their books to, to, uh, uh, yeah, to g give them a reason to add your wine onto their list. Um, yeah. Excuse me. Tell me about the, that kind of process of taking your wine into a, a restaurant or to a store to try to sell it, and mm -hmm. especially as it's your your first product. Mm -hmm. what, what's that like? What's what's how's it like dealing with that kind yeah, of? Yeah, that that's been tough. It's, I'm not a very good salesman, but there is sort of a process to it. Um, it's not good to just show up unannounced. Um, uh, it's better to call ahead of time, set a, set a schedule, which is tricky because then that cuts into my work week because mm -hmm. I still have to work a full week um, with grocery house sellers to be able to pay the bills. Um, uh, so yeah, meet with them and just pour them a taste and describe it a little, and um, and talk to them, see what they want, what 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 sort of wines they're looking for, or what what they might be looking to change on their wine list, and what kind of food they serve. Um, so what what goes what it might pair well with. Mm -hmm. um, but my yeah, the 2018 rosé is very uh, food friendly, so it could go with a good diversity of things. Um, so that's really helpful. Um, and yeah, and, and also uh, uh, keep going back to um, uh, um, my friend Sarah, who works in our tasting room at, at Grocery Cellars. Um, she said I have to follow the rule of seven. I was like, what's the rule of seven? She's like, we have to go back seven times. So <laughs> you're like, oh, okay, all right, yeah. Um, so yeah, just being persistent and without being in the way, you know. Um, uh, so just going back and hopefully you'll find them at, a right, at the right time when they, when they need something. Um, uh, so yeah, it's it's a long process. Did you find that people, when you were when you were presenting your wine to, mm -hmm. to buyers, were you, would you find people were responding more to the wine or to, or to you to the story or what, what's the what's um, the combination there that people are looking for? The story is a big part of it. Yeah, um, um, yeah. So I mean, it, the people would always like the wine, but it doesn't mean they were would be willing to buy the wine too. They're really they're buying the story for the most part. Um, like for, uh, there was a couple times when I would go and, uh, or I would sell a case of wine somewhere, um, and then I'd go back 
a month or two later just to see if it was you know on the menu see how the sales are doing maybe they need more you want to buy more you know um, but only to find that it never even made it on the menu they just bought it just because like oh you're sweet you need to, <laughs> here you go you know, <laughs> we'll buy a case for you, you know? um, so they, they just took it and drank it themselves I'm not sure but um, uh, which that was kind of a surprise but like okay thanks for your help but yeah um, so yeah uh, but yeah what about actually seeing it on a menu? Have you had the experience yet of seeing your own mm -hmm. wine on a menu? What's what's yeah. that like? That's got to be a pretty it's, interesting feeling. It's really nice. Yeah, it's um, it's a good feeling. Yeah, it's um, still getting used to it, and I'm not not quite sure. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's um, it's a different. It's a whole different experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about your, your winemaking philosophy. Obviously, you've had a lot of teachers over the years in various various countries and various mm -hmm. types of wineries. Uh, what so, sort of wine are you trying to make? What is your what is the philosophy behind behind your wine? Um, I well, there's I'm kind of echoing a lot of people when I say this, but um, going for the more of the the, uh, the ale elegant um, or not too extracted, not a lot of oak, um, just more natural, more hands off sort of style, um, but. I also don't want to um, go so hands-off that it's negligent, because mm -hmm. that often is the case. Um, people go too far with it, and they, they think, it, oh, it's Pinot Noir, it's soft skin, so I'm not going to even look at it, you know. Um, but you need to do some things in order to, you know, make sure that they have a healthy fermentation and um, there's no negative flavors, no sulfur off odors that sort of arise, mm -hmm. um, which, which can be very possible. So just giving, giving the wine uh, just enough uh, love and just enough handling to, um, to just have to be to, for the for the vineyard to actually show through, because mm -hmm. um, you don't want the you know mistakes from the winemaker to dominate the uh, the, the elegance uh, coming from the vineyard. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just yeah, just, just so creating a style that. Um, uh, um, yeah, it's more transparent in a way, but it's yeah. Um, but, it's, but still, it's not. Um, um, what do I want to say? Um, it's not becoming too reductive or too oxidative, but going right down in the middle, um, giving it enough oxygen. But not, but um, like there's a, there's a group of people um, that are going for more of a you know pick early and. Um, during the initial stages of the wine's life, during when it's juice and when it's fermenting, and even right after it's become finished wine after pressing, giving it uh, a, a decent amount of air, mm -hmm. uh, not a lot, but enough anyway, mm -hmm. uh, which will help um, make the tannins to become more stable, um, help the color become stable, um, and also makes the, the flavor and aroma more expressible. Mm -hmm. um, but then after that period, when it gets into the aging period, the, the elevage, that's when you want a more restrictive oxygen environment, um, where you really want at most the micro oxygenation, which you know is people will romanticize barrels about their ability to you know let in tiny amounts of oxygen mm -hmm. through the pores, and this is true, but um, uh, uh, but you don't want it to be reductive before it gets into the barrel. Mm -hmm. You want that reduction to occur in the barrel. Um, so that's that's been a, a big part of um, what I go for, um, giving it just enough uh, extraction, being gentle with it. Um, um, like so, for for red blends or for, for reds in general, um, uh, uh, going for more pump overs. But again, that that depends on 
uh, what, what, what comes from the vineyard, um, the, like the tannin content, um, and, and also the year too. Uh, like a, if it's a year where, or a vineyard that has a high tannin content, you generally want to give it more air. Because um, more, more tannins mean it needs more oxygen to, uh, to lead to those more stable uh, compounds. Um, but if it's a more lighter, delicate uh, vineyard, then uh, then less oxygen is needed. So it's a pretty simple function there. Mm -hmm. um, and um, always going by uh, taste and flavor on determining when to when is enough. You know, because uh, you, you can tell uh, as soon as the, the reduction is lifted, the fruit comes back. It's very nice. It just becomes delicate and very expressive, and it uh, just it smells amazing when when you're mm -hmm. right in the middle of a ferment. Um, uh, and I think it's fascinating because, um, well, like we as humans, like the way we interact with wine, you know, we, we taste it, we smell it, we feel it with our mouth, you know, texturally, and um, and we see it uh, color-wise, you know, with the four of the five human senses. Um, and uh, uh, but I think it's fascinating because these four senses all kind of rely on one group of compounds coming mm -hmm. from the grapes, the tannins, mm -hmm. or the phenolics. Um, so, uh, so I'm really going for good tannin development, uh, good associated with well-structured wines um, that aren't over-extracted, mm -hmm. um, but still have enough to give it some to give it life and to give it to, to give it legs to go into a long uh, aging period. Mm -hmm. So, but so, so if done right, ideally, at least with Pinot Noir wines in this area, um, I feel. You, uh, if it's if it's structured well enough, it'll be not only will it be more uh, drinkable right out of the gate mm -hmm. once it's right after uh, right after it's bottled. Uh, so you don't have to wait, you know, two or three years in the bottle for it to really be enjoyable. Mm -hmm. But then it, then it will also have those stable compounds, and it'll be able to, to age more gracefully too. So it's kind of winning twice in that way. So um, and I think we do have that potential here in the mm -hmm. valley uh, if it's if it's handled the right way. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so seeing a lot of, lots of different styles um, uh, and kind of analyzing what they're doing and trying to find a, a reasoning for why their wines are the way they are mm -hmm. after the, following these methods. Mm -hmm. um, um, yeah, that's I just, yeah, I've just realized that it is important to give the wine some oxygen early on. Um, and. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, there's a point where auction is the enemy. Where um, so that it, where it's auction helps at the beginning of the part, and then it's you know it's less helpful later on. It's more uh, destructive later on. Mm -hmm. um, you've, you've worked with some pretty exciting vineyards already in your couple of years uh, making wine. As you mm -hmm. as you grow and expand and, and, and mm -hmm. in the future, what are you, what are the vineyard characteristics you're going to be looking for? Um, uh, um, not too high elevation, but not too low. So um, I like to be between like 500 to 700 feet or so, probably. Um, uh, just good, well-drained soil. Which that could be the like Jory Nakaya, the volcanic basalt series, or like the uplifted marine sediment. Those are, yeah, all amazing qualities coming from those. Um, uh, and also uh, sites that are just naturally more, more have more of a cooling effect, mm -hmm. uh, like Vita Springs definitely has that. So I really want to uh, maintain relationships with them. Um, and uh, uh, and also like a, a, a good diversity in the, in the vineyard, and um, and find uh, growers who have sort of the same philosophy um, as what 
what I feel are my, my, my um, values too. Um, uh, being, yeah, encouraging more diversity, um, no harsh herbicides, so definitely going for more, at least sustainable, more, hopefully more organic or even biodynamic, but, um, uh, but, but yeah, basically more organic farming yep. approaches is what I would uh, favor. Um, so yeah, making sure that, and staying in touch with the, with the, with the vineyard owners and, um, um, and, 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 uh, learning more about what they're doing in the vineyard and how they're handling problems, if there are any problems. Um, and, uh, cause I, I can't be out in the vines every day cause I, you know, I gotta do the grocery house sellers work and sell my wine now. So it's, it's hard to do it all. Um, uh. So yeah, just so it's so the importance of just having a good good connection with uh, uh, the vineyard owners and um, mm -hmm. just maintaining that relationship, I guess. Mm -hmm. So it's finding the right people who are in the grapes too, mm -hmm. um, besides the grape sites themselves. So as you as you look ahead now, you've got a you've got a mm -hmm. stability here with with your day job and you've got your own mm -hmm. label just getting going. What do you see as you look ahead for yourself five ten years in the future? Um, build slowly. Um, and uh, and it seems, I mean, the uh, direct-to-consumer um, approach, the sales approach, that, that is probably the most profitable, but that's um, not quite what I would like to, where I would like to go with it, because with that, it's more, um, you have a nice tasting room, maybe in your vineyard, and so people come out for events, and you're there, you're the star of the party, and that's just kind of not me as a person. Um, I, was, I was kind of more, you know, introverted and fly on the wall kind of person. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of scares me a little bit. So, so I don't, I don't want to have to, um, uh, yeah, just that those, the, being put in that kind of situation doesn't really appeal to me as much. Um, uh, but, and also I'd, I'd just rather be, you know, working with the, with the wines and, mm -hmm. and spending my time doing that. Um, so I think there's a lot of potential with doing the, um, uh, having a, uh, uh, more of a bulk winemaking side that that funds the the higher end side. Mm -hmm. um, so having some sort of lower lower priced wines um, that are more approachable to to a, to a wider audience that are distributed more um, uh, more ex expansively. Mm -hmm. um, that and all that kind of goes into f funding the the smaller projects. Yes. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So uh, yeah. So so finding which is a way of, you know, um, in, in order to do that, then you have to look at what, what, what is out there on the market, what sort of niches need to be filled, what's, what's hot right now, what, what, how could I get something that could make a dent on the market, you know? Because mm -hmm. there's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there that um, has, you know, massive marketing programs that I, I can't even start to compete with, but um, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so we'll, we'll see about that. But uh, so with rosé, for one, yeah, uh, I think that has a lot of potential. Um, I'm not sure. We'll see. There's a, um, I mean, like, um, yeah, well, like with Oregon, um, like people are going to be doing the higher end Pinot for sure. That's definitely going to happen. But with the climate change kind of changing things a little bit, um, we're going to have more varieties that become just as good as Pinot Noir sometimes. Like. Um, uh, I think Gamay is going to have has a, a lot of a, a lot of a, a good future ahead of it. <clears throat> um, I think there's some some sites are going to make start planting Gamay in the in the, the, the preferred spots of the vineyard, mm -hmm. as opposed to planting those spots with only Pinot and then giving the, the lesser preferred sites 
to to the gamay or the the lesser um, um, prize uh, prize grapes uh, mm -hmm. in the on like the the, the B rated sites in a way. Um, so soon we're going to have um, some really good vineyards uh, with gamay. And um, I think you're going to start getting higher scores with Gamay, and I think that that's going to kind of change things a little bit. Um, and um, so, yeah. Um, any so other, we'll any other varietals you're excited to work with? Um, yeah, there's um, uh, some guys that um, work with um, uh, our colleagues of John. Um, uh, they, their label is Redolent. Um, uh, it's uh, yeah, John Larson, Boyd Pearson, and also. Um, John Groshow, so John Boyd and John, or Joe Bojo, as they go by. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, they're they're doing some really cool stuff. They're, so they're they're, they're um, they have a Nebbiolo and a Pinot and a Nebbiolo Pinot blend, mm -hmm. and so I think that's um, that, that has some. It's, it's different enough that it's um, it, it makes a splash in the market, and it's good enough that it really um, makes people keep going back to it. Um, so I think Nebbiolo has a good has a possible uh, future here. Mm -hmm. um, maybe like the southern parts of the valley, not quite the northern part, but um, some of the warmer sites really. Mm -hmm. um, so varieties like that would be really good. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's it's you know to be determined, I guess, a lot of that. But um, yeah, mm -hmm. you talk about growing slowly. Do you mm -hmm. do you have a size in mind for where you'd like to end up? Um, I hear like I hear the magic number is four thousand cases. So. Um, here you can really become um, uh, more sustainable uh, on your own at that at that at that level. So, um, so yeah, once I hit that, it should be good. I think. But tell me about uh, if, if, uh, you're, if you're you're pouring wine for someone. What's mm -hmm. the what's the best reaction you can get from someone? What's the ultimate compliment someone could pay a, a glass of your wine? Um, Buying a bottle, I guess. <laughs> um, that's the biggest thing. Um, and and buying and continuing to buy it. Yeah, that's yeah. Just the the, the return customers. That's the that's the biggest compliment for sure. Yeah. So you've you've been around the industry quite a while. Uh, tell me about what you've seen uh, from Oregon wine since you from where you started to where it is now. Mm -hmm. And what are the biggest changes you've seen? And kind of where does it stand now in 2020? Um. Uh, well. Um, I guess my time, I, I still I feel kind of new here, even though I've been here for so long. But um, yeah, just the, the the outside investment is is definitely changing things. Um, the corporate investment. Um, there's a lot of more bigger wineries out there now with just you know with tank farms outside. That's that's kind of new because um, just looking at like Twelfth of Maple when I when I was there, they were. Kind of small compared to what they are now. Um, so you drive by and you see these massive tanks outside, and they've really, you know, geared their business plan towards um, the uh, the bulk side of their of their um, uh, business plan, mm -hmm. um, which is yeah, which is not a bad thing at all. Um, uh, so that's that's a big part of it. Um, uh, so as a result, then um, you have these you know bigger companies with their massive marketing schemes um, all across the world. Promoting Oregon wine, um, and so hopefully that'll create an awareness for what we have here. Um, but assuming that the, that the quality is there and, and people are, you know, paying attention to it and and finding, yeah. What do you expect as you look ahead for Oregon wine? What is it going to look like, uh, say, ten years from now? Um, I think it'll be. 
um, kind of like, a, like what I was saying, like I think it'll um, uh, expand both on the, the fine wine making side and also on the the lower tier side, if you will. Um, still quality, but yeah, just you know, more uh, affordable wines. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we do have a lot of, lot of room for growth there. Mm -hmm. um, so I think people will start planting more vineyards um, in uh, sites that weren't as feasible 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, you know, if we do keep having these warmer years, then we will be able to ripen more things. Like um, I was talking to a, a wine shop owner, and he was suggesting like Cab Franc in this area might be good. Mm -hmm. It's like if they can if they can ripen it in Chinon, then why not here? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and, I, and and that that variety, I guess, is also a little bit more agreeable to um, uh, uh, like lower. Um, elevation sites, so more valley, so there's more opportunity for valley floor, mm -hmm. valley floor um, vineyards, which you know Pinot just doesn't work on, but but Cab Franc maybe, you know. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so so that you could maybe you could farm it a little more affordably and um, probably have a higher yield as a result as a result, and um, so have good quality um, going into like a a blend of. Oregon something, Oregon red wine, I guess. You know, whatever you do with the, that, I'm not sure, but um, uh, yeah, it kind of depends on what's what the market would be asking for. Um, uh, yeah, so I think it'd be yeah, so uh, inc increased production on the, the finer wine making side, and also the lower tier side too. Mm -hmm. So I think it, I think it will expand in many dimensions. You've seen your alma mater get quite into the to the wine industry yeah, since, you, since you've left. Yeah. Obviously, that's why one of the reasons we're here today. Yeah. What do you <laughs> What do you kind of hope for as you look for like Linfield, Linfield specifically, or, or Linfield's connection to the wine industry? Um, uh, one thing that I um, really appreciate about with, with Linfield getting into it is uh, just um, attracting more talent. I guess more. Um, uh, like like more experts coming and giving talks, mm -hmm. and which sort of you know inviting the community to, to come see these talks and everything, um, so that creates more of an awareness, and it's just um, it's more in the air, and it's more um, you know pu um, uh, pushing new developments in the industry. Um, uh, but for the Linfield program, I'm not sure. It's uh, I mean. Like Schmeckett's got a pretty good operation going on already um, for like the, the technical school and um, learning just what you need to know to get out there and work in the industry. Um, hmm. So yeah, I think I think it, they could possibly get more into the research side a bit, um, but that would require some uh, a good vineyard and which I guess you have sort of now with the, the Evanstad's um, uh, donation. Um, so pushing more we're, of that. We're working our way that way. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, but I mean, you go. Yeah, with the, the research side, with the, the viticulture side, um, could possibly do some winemaking things. Um, but I think, but before then, yeah, the doing the wine business uh, is a big part of it because that is such a crucial part of the industry. Mm -hmm. um, just having a good marketing program for a winery is so important. Um, and so I think that might um, give Oregon as an industry uh, more of an edge to be able to get it, you know, get more exposure out there on the market. Um, if it has more more people that are you know, skilled with uh, the marketing and business side of things, mm -hmm. that can you know get out there and get it, get our name out there. I guess um, so. Okay. If someone were to come to you and ask about joining the Oregon wine industry, what would your words of wisdom to them be? 
Um, well, it kind of depends on the person, I guess. Um, I don't know if you're if you already have the money and you're biting into it, and um, find someone who knows what they're doing and get their help. <laughs> I guess uh, is a, a big part of it. Um, don't be. A, I mean, you, it, you can do a lot yourself, but it's um, there's more to it than what you might be ready for, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so find some help, and it's, it is out there. There's plenty of very skilled people in this area. Um, um, and for someone who is has is getting into it more like me, um, I don't know. It's just um, uh, it's important to find an employer who um, uh, is looking out for you in addition to you, you know, working for them. Because you know, if you're making their dream come true, then they better you know at least you know be able to give you a sustainable life. You know, um, so that's a big part of it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, just. Um, study as much as possible, um, taste as much as possible, um, just, yeah, just be active as much as you can and um, um, yeah, try new, different, different new, new wines and share it with friends, I guess. Mm -hmm. That's all the questions we have for you today. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? Anything we didn't cover? Um, we should have nothing comes to mind. No. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate your time today, your stories, your answers, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.